this is Dr. David Bauer in his teaching on inductive Bible study. This is session number five, Whole Book Survey, Structural Relationships. We're ready now to talk about the uh, central feature, really, of a book survey, and that is structure. As I mentioned before, there are two components to structure. Uh, the first involves the identification of main units and subunits, which really has to do with the linear progression of the book, uh, the breakdown of the book into its, is, of course, its main units and subunits. Now, um, there are uh, two ways of identifying main units and subunits. Uh, the first uh, is uh, uh, to note the major shifts of emphasis. Uh, and so in a book, let's say, a hypothetical book, uh, as you're reading through, uh, you may note uh, that, uh, let's say, in this hypothetical book, in uh, 1.1 uh, through uh, 3.10, uh, you have one major emphasis here that binds this material together and sets it off from that which follows. And then, again, we might say uh, 3.11 uh, uh, through 9.50 uh, may have a shift of emphasis uh, so that this first major emphasis is replaced by a second one that binds this material together and, of course, sets it off both from the material that precedes and the material that follows. And then, uh, let's say here, in 10.1 uh, through 12.14, uh, the third main unit may be bound together by a third emphasis that sets this off from the material that follows. Now, it's important to realize that when you're, when you're talking about shifts of emphasis, it's not a matter of absolute exclusion. Uh, in fact, uh, very seldom will you have a case where you have a major emphasis here that's not mentioned at all later in the book. But it ceases in our hypothetical uh, example here. Uh, this, first main, uh, em this first major emphasis ceases to be a major emphasis in 310. Uh, and so although it may or may not be mentioned later on, it's no longer an emphasis. So that uh, this as an emphasis binds this material together and then the major shift of emphasis uh, uh, in 3.11 through 9.50 uh, becomes, uh, becomes this other uh, element here that binds this material together. And as I say, it sets it off both from the material that precedes and that follows. Now, when it comes to subunits, uh, uh, it's helpful to ask yourself the same question. That is to say, where are the major shift or shifts of emphasis within each of the main units? Uh, and so we might say, in a case like this, 1-1 uh, one, one, uh, through 2-10 uh, uh, would be uh, a, would involve a, within 1-1 within one, one through 3-10, within that material, you have a, uh, an emphasis here uh, in 1-1 one, one through 2-10, and then a shift of emphasis within this first main unit, uh, let's say in 2-11 through 3-10, and of course that would mark your subunit there. So that's one way to identify main units. Now it's actually at this point that the, uh, your identification of general materials becomes significant because 
you would expect that if your general materials, say, are biographical, that you will have major shifts of emphasis in the presentation of persons. So if I identified my general materials as, as biographical, I would ask myself when I got to this point, where are the major shifts of emphasis in the presentation of persons? Or maybe the leading person uh, here. Whereas if I identified the general materials, uh, let's say, as ideological, I would ask where are the major shifts in the presentation of ideas? Or if I'd ask, if I'd identify the general materials, say, as geographical, I'd ask, where are the major shifts in the presentation of places uh, and the like? Now, of course, everything that we do really in survey is tentative. Uh, this really, particularly the survey of the book, is a, is a kind of an initiation, kind of an orientation to the book itself. Uh, and so we're not making any observations here that are that are absolutely definitive or final. In other words, we may change our mind. Uh, one of the beauties of this, uh, of this uh, kind of study is that it is self-correcting. So we may, uh, we, we, we may, as we go into further stages of study, correct observations that we made at the point of the, of the survey of the book, but the self-correcting character of a survey actually comes to the fore uh, even here because if, let's say, I identified my general materials as biographical, when I come to this point, it may, may very well be the case that I find that the book does not, does not break down naturally excuse <coughs> me, along biographical lines. I may say, well, although I identified my general materials as biographical, actually the book seems to divide more uh, uh, at, uh, along geographical lines or along ideological lines. If that's the case, that may cause me to rethink the, my identification of general materials and to say, well, now I see that although I originally thought that the general materials were biographical, I now see that it's more likely that they were geographical because the book really seems to move more according to geographical breakdown. <clears throat> now, a second possible way of identifying main units uh, within a book is implications from major structural relationships. And I haven't talked yet about major structural relationships. As a matter of fact, we're going to mention those relationships next. But uh, just to anticipate what we're going to say, if, for example, you see one of the major structural features of the book as what we'll call causation, the movement from cause to effect, so that you say, well, 1, 1 through 3, 10 seems to be cause for the effect which is found in 3.11 through 12.14 would be effect. That would be a case of causation. But if you do, in fact, have causation as a major structural relationship within the book, it follows that there will be a major break between the presentation of the cause and the presentation of the effect. That's an implication, a breakdown implication from that structural relationship. So... Uh, that then would cause, so you may in fact, in other words, see a major break within a book, in this case, between 110 through 310 and 310 and 11, on the basis of major shifts of Ephesus. And then, having done that, you look at that and say, well, it appears that 11 through 310 is cause, and 311 and following is effect. Or, conversely, 
It may be that you'd see the causation first, that you'd see this causal movement from the cause in 1, 1 through 3, 10 to the effect in 3, 11 and following and say, okay, that cause, that causation there suggests a major break here. So, as I say, you may see the major break on the basis of major shifts of emphasis first and then ask yourself subsequently, is there a structural relationship between this first main division and the rest of the book? Identify then that cause, that structural relationship. Or you may see the cause, the structural relationship first, and on the basis of that say, well, if this structural relationship is present, that implies that there must be a break here. And which, which, uh, whichever way that goes may depend on what day it is. Uh, some days you may see the uh, breakdown on the basis of major shifts of emphasis, and then go ahead and inquire about the structural relationships operative between these major units that you've identified. Or it may be that you identify the structural relationship first, and on the basis of that, come to a decision with regard to breakdown. Now, there are basically, uh, well, there are a few reasons or purposes, I mentioned six, for the identification of main units and subunits. And I hope you're seeing that I'm careful to identify and discuss the reasons or purposes why we do these things in observation. What difference it makes in terms of, of, of interpretation? Because we don't do these things just to do them. Uh, these tasks that we do in, in observation are not ends in themselves. All observation exists for the sake of interpretation. So there's a reason for all of these things. For one thing, the identification of main units and subunits will help us to identify the main concern or focus of large or significant sections of the book. It will give us a sense as to what this book is really concerned with. The main points of concern of this book. Because what you want to do when you identify main units especially, well, subunits too, is to give descriptive headings for them. If, in fact, uh, you have a major emphasis here uh, that binds this material together and sets it off from the material that follows, it's helpful to give a general, uh, a, 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 a descriptive heading uh, to this main unit here uh, that reflects the major emphasis that we have. So as you do that, you'll actually be able to discern the major emphases in the book. In this case, in this hypothetical book where we have three major uh, div div uh, divisions, uh, this book is, is concerned about this and this, this main, main emphasis, this main emphasis, and this main emphasis, and of course, a relationship to each other. It will also help us, as we mentioned here, uh, to identify the overall movement of the book. This um, reflects the fact that, that, readers, that writers communicate meaning through placement, through how they, how they place things in relation to other things within the book. Another way of putting it is that readers gain meaning or understanding through linear progression. The fact that, that this is discussed first, and then, this, and then this other passage follows this, and the third passage follows them, 
fact that passages are placed in that kind of sequence is part of the uh, the arsenal that a a writer has uh, to build meaning in the mind of the reader. Uh, scholars refer to this as a principle of primacy and subsequency, so that uh, what uh, what we read first, uh, it, so that uh, what what we read first is significant in terms of its placement, and that we understand that in terms of what follows in sequence and the like. So uh, the overall movement of the book is important. Also, it will help us to identify the relative amount of space given to various themes or issues. Now, I'm not really a stickler when it comes to how to format and how one puts these things down, but I do think it's helpful uh, in, uh, in working with main units and subunits in a, in a book, the breakdown of the book, to use a chart because it gives you a visual sense of the flow or the movement of, of the book uh, that aids in understanding. Uh, and um, if you draw your chart according to scale... It pertains to what we're talking about now. Gives you some idea as to the relative amount of, one might say, of, uh, of space or uh, of attention, just in terms of mass, uh, that the writer gives to various themes or issues. Uh, in this case, you see, the, uh, uh, the relative amount of space, one might say, that the writer gives to the second major emphasis is much greater than what he gives to the first and to the last. Now, I hesitate to use the word space because we know in ancient times uh, that uh, all reading was oral. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in many, most of these cases, these books were, in, were experienced, were encountered through hearing. Uh, so say someone read them out and most people heard. Uh, as a matter of fact, we don't know a matter, as a matter of fact, uh, the percentage of the population that were literate uh, in, uh, in ancient times, either in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, or in the first century Greco-Roman world, uh, there's a great range of, uh, of opinions with regard to uh, the percentage of uh, literacy and the like, but it wasn't high. Uh, and so most people did hear. And as a matter of fact, even in terms of individual reading, it was uh, oral. It was out loud. Um, so, matter of fact, there's an interesting uh, passage. This is uh, illustrated uh, in the. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's uh, uh, in the eighth chapter of Acts. It's the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, where you remember uh, Philip, uh, the apostle, or not apostle, but the evangelist, uh, approaches uh, the Ethiopian uh, eunuch uh, in his carriage, and uh, he's, uh, he's his, presumably his driver is there, but he is reading to himself uh, the Isaiah scroll, uh, and Philip hears him reading it. Uh, it's just a, a, a really an offhanded uh, a comment there on the part of Luke, uh, that reflects the, the fact that we know otherwise, and that is that, that, that even when persons read to themselves, they read out loud. Uh, and so when you talk about space, uh, you know, the relative amount of space, uh, that's true with regard to, to the visual presentation of this on a chart. Uh, really, in terms of how readers experienced it, it was a relative amount of time uh, that it took to read through it. 
But anyway, uh, the, the, the relative mass, you might say, uh, which we refer to as quantitative selectivity. So it helps uh, in that way, selectivity. Now, um, a further purpose, and by the way, uh, let me see here. Let me just indicate, show what this might look like in an actual book. Um, So, um, and let me see if I can bring that up a little bit. Sure, why that? Yes. Uh, this would be uh, my survey of the book of Amos. Uh, incidentally, you'll note the uh, specific materials, the chapter titles that I give there at the top. Uh, but uh, uh, in the book of Amos, as I stand back and get a sense of the broad overarching movement, and once again, let me urge you um, who are watching to, uh, uh, to have Bible uh, in hand and open, uh, and uh, look at the text itself uh, here. Uh, but you'll notice that uh, you have a general, what I call a general heading uh, in one one, um, and then you really have a general declaration in one two. Uh, that statement actually encapsulates, uh, in a nutshell, the message of the entire book. Uh, but uh, uh, in one three through two sixteen, you have a major emphasis upon. Judgment upon the nations uh, in the area. And you remember, as a matter of fact, if you have the Bibles open, you'll see uh, that you have a, uh, a repeated uh, uh, formula there for three transgressions and for four. And uh, the writer, uh, uh, or who is actually recording these prophecies of Amos, uh, begins uh, with those na nations that are relatively geographically remote, uh, from uh, uh, Israel, and uh, in, in each one, then, uh, you find that uh, the nation gets closer. So you have a kind of uh, increasing uh, 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 focus upon Israel until it ends, really, with, the, with Israel almost as a target in the middle of, a, uh, uh, of, uh, of the ring there. Uh, but you have the litany of, of judgment upon various nations there, including uh, Israel, finally Israel. But then in 3, 1 through 9, 15, the focus is entirely and exclusively upon Israel. So once again, and, and again, this is drawn to scale, uh, so you see that in terms of quantitative selectivity, the relative amount of space that is given, uh, you have about, uh, well, really more than three times as much space given to the declarations of judgment and mercy upon Israel, as the litany, as you do the litany of judgment upon the various nations. But of course, it's also important to note that, that the reader comes to the declarations of judgment and mercy upon Israel after having read the litany of the judgment upon the various nations. 
So in terms of sequence and the building of meaning on the, in the, part, on the part of the reader, it's significant for the reader to begin with to encounter, first of all, this litany of judgment upon the various nations, and then to read the declarations of judgment and mercy upon Israel in light of and against the backdrop of the litany of judgment upon the various nations there in chapters 1 and 2. <clears throat> now, a further reason for doing or purpose for identifying main units and subunits uh, is, to de- is to begin to discern where a given passage fits in the scheme of the book. So it's very important, for example, to note that uh, in 2, 6 through 16, that is the judgment upon, that, 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 that passage discusses a judgment upon Israel, but as part of that cycle of judgment upon the various nations that you have throughout 1, 3 through 2, 16. And its, and, and, and its placement there is significant. Or to note uh, that uh, the, book, uh, the book ends with this last subunit of the declarations of judgment and mercy upon Israel, and that is the promise of the restoration of Israel there in 9, 8, B through 15. See, the point is that where a passage falls within the scheme or the program of the book may determine in large measure the meaning of that passage itself. Now just imagine if you had this promise of restoration, 9, 8B through 15, which is at the end of the book, if you had that passage not here, but up here at the beginning. And the difference that that would make in terms of the, of the, of the impact and really the meaning of this passage. The meaning of this passage is in large measure uh, uh, determined by the fact that it comes at the end of the book, that it forms a combination of the book. It comes after the declarations of guilt and judgment. It would mean it's this passage itself, intact, would mean something quite different if it appeared somewhere else in the program of the book. And then the final purpose I will mention in identifying main units and subunits is will help us to identify turning points in the book, which are often, often significant in discerning the message of the book. Quite often, the most significant passage of a book has to do with passages that, 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 uh, uh, that uh, are placed or that stand uh, at the end of one main unit and the beginning of the next. So you would expect a, a significant passage here to be uh, somewhere at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Now the second uh, component of uh, structure beyond linear development, main units and subunits breakdown, uh, are what we call major structural relationships, and we want to turn uh, to that uh, now. Uh, and uh, so just getting ourselves back here to uh, the right place in the overheads. There are really two broad types of structural relationships. Um, <clears throat> the first 
we'll call primary relationships, and then the other type are, are auxiliary relationships. Um, we'll talk about the difference between primary and auxiliary relationships when we get to auxiliary relationships. It's important only at this point to remember that uh, uh, these relationships that we're talking about presently are primary relationships. Notice that we mention, uh, identify major structural relationships. In the survey of the book, you want to identify only major relationships. And a major relationship is one uh, that... Uh, that controls more than that controls the book as a whole, or more than half the material within the book. Now that's important because what we're after in book survey is the macro structure of the book, uh, and you want to avoid getting bogged down in details or focusing upon upon details in the book, but rather at this point in the book survey to get a broad a, 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 a sense of the broad overarching movement. Uh, of the book, and uh, to do that, you want to limit your observations to those structural relationships that control more than half the material within the book. Otherwise, you're, you would be identifying relationships that are not major but are minor and do not deal with the structure of the entire book, the book in the large, but only with smaller passages um, within uh, the book. F for example, uh, you have in... Uh, uh, in um, Genesis um, 4 and 5, a contrast between Cain and Abel. Now, that is a major contrast within the book of Genesis. Excuse me, that is a contrast within that passage. Excuse me. That's a, a contrast within that passage, but it is not a major structural relationship. It's not a major contrast in the book of Genesis as a whole because it controls only about two chapters of a book of 50 chapters in length. It does not control more than half the material within the entire book of Genesis and therefore does not address really the macro structure of Genesis and is not helpful in observing at the point of book survey. Now, the first primary relationship we'll mention is that of recurrence, uh, which really involves the notion of repetition. It has to do with the repetition of the same or similar terms, phrases, or other elements. And an example of recurrence in a book would be, as I suggest uh, here, uh, the recurrence of witness or testify. Uh, in uh, the book of Acts. might mention also the recurrence, the constant repetition throughout more than half the book of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit in uh, the book of Acts. Um, you might note also, as you're thinking of, if you would think about the book of Proverbs, the recurrence of wise or wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and also, incidentally, in Proverbs, recurrence of its opposite, of foolishness or a folly. So what we have in the book of Proverbs is actually a recurrence of contrast. Repeatedly, the writer contrasts wisdom and foolishness. 
So you see that you can actually have a recurrence even of another structural relationship within a book. Now, recurrence uh, involves really three things. One is, to have recurrence, you must have, of course, frequency. That is to say, at least the, the, the term or the, uh, uh, the phrase or the other element, even if it's another structural relationship, uh, needs to appear more than once. It does not necessarily need to appear a lot of times to have recurrence as a major structural relationship, but it certainly needs to recur. But it can, it, it, but, but it can be a major structural relationship, as I say, even if it doesn't recur a lot of times, if it meets the, the, the following two criteria as well. To have recurrence as a major structural relationship involves not only frequency, but also distribution. That is to say, the occurrences need to be, need to be found throughout most of the book. Uh, in, uh, in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, you have, within that passage, six times the phrase, you have, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, or the like. So you have, you have frequency there, six times, but you don't have distribution. That, that contrast, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, is found only in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. It does not have distribution throughout most of the book and therefore is not a major recurrence. And the third um, uh, criterion that is necessary for recurrence as a major structural relationship is importance. Uh, to um, uh, cite a, perhaps a, a, a too obvious example, you have in the book of um, Mark a repetition of the word and. Now, that really recurs throughout, throughout Mark. But so what? It doesn't really carry any, any weight, and therefore it has very little meaning. It will not be helpful for us in ascertaining the macro structure of the book. So frequency, distribution, and importance. Now, recurrence is important in the book because, for one thing, it indicates emphasis. The writer, a writer tells you, that something, a theme, a word, a phrase, an element is important, is really important, you need to pay attention to it by way of recurrence. About the twelfth time you find a, a, a term uh, repeated within a book, you begin to think, this seems to be important from the point of view of the writer. I need to pay special attention to it. Also, of course, recurrence can mark uh, development throughout the book, uh, so that um, uh, the writer will indicate actually a kind of development or movement uh, of that theme by way of recurrence throughout the book. An example of this would be the fact that you have the recurrence of judges in the book of Judges. And actually, there is a development in those judges. Of course, uh, uh, you begin with uh, Othniel uh, there and Ehud. Those are the first two judges in the book of Judges, in that series of judges. Uh, and they basically are without fault. They're presented as without warts. There's no problem, really, suggested with either one of them. 
And then, but then you find that as you move into Deborah and Barak, you begin to have slight indications of deficiencies, of problems with the judges. That becomes even more pronounced with Gideon and more pronounced still with Jephthah. And by the time you get to the last of the judges in that series of judges, in the recurrence of judges in the book of Judges, Samson, you have a judge who is no better than the people that he is sent to deliver. And as a matter of fact, maybe even, a, even somewhat worse uh, than, uh, may re- represent the very worst of what's going on in Israel at that time. So you have that downward progression, you see, that is suggested by the development, in this case the downward development, in the recurrence of Judges, in the book of Judges. Now, a, a further type of uh, relationship that we sometimes find in books is that of contrast. And contrast involves the association of things whose differences are stressed by the writer. The key term in contrast is but, or however, although you can have contrast used implicitly. That is to say, where you have the association of things whose differences are stressed by the writer when the writer doesn't explicitly use the word but. Nevertheless, when you have the word but, you know that that contrast is present. And uh, if you think you may have contrast, if you put but or however between those things and that makes sense, then you know that contrast is a, is a real possibility. Now, um, we mentioned already an example of contrast in a book, and that is that in Proverbs we have the recurrence or repeated contrast between wisdom and foolishness. What the writer, of course, is, is, is inviting the reader to do here is to pause and to ask him or herself exactly what are the differences between wisdom and foolishness, and what is the meaning of those differences? What is the full significance, as presented in this book of Proverbs, between wisdom and foolishness? Again, this should illustrate, really, the principle that we talked about earlier, and that is that that you never have content without form. The writer is using this form, this structure of contrast, to communicate meaning. His point is the differences between wisdom and foolishness. Now, that's an example of recurring um, contrast uh, within a book. In terms of a kind of simple contrast within a book as a whole, we might cite the book of Amos, which we just looked at in terms of the chart of its breakdown. And that is, uh, that we noted, uh, that in, in, in 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 the uh, in most of the book, running from 1, 2 uh, through 9, 8a, you have imminent judgment and destruction, which then is contrasted to that last passage in the book, ultimate restoration and glory of Israel. So judgment, which dominates the book, 1, 2 through 9, 8a, is contrasted with the promise of restoration in 9, 8b, through 15. And again, the writer wants us to consider what exactly is involved in the differences between God relating to his people in terms of judgment 
near imminent judgment and the difference between that and what God will do ultimately for his people Israel in terms of restoration. Now a further uh, type of, uh, and of course we mentioned uh, another example uh, here, again repeated contrast in the book of Amos between Haman, uh, Haman's family, uh, and really uh, the enemies of the Jews uh, versus uh, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in general uh, in the book of, uh, of Esther. And again, the message of the book of Esther is carried along by this contrast, by the difference. And, and really to understand in depth the meaning of the book, the message of the book of, uh, of Esther, uh, we need really to, to think seriously and consider seriously the meaning of the differences between Haman, his family, the enemies of Jews on the one hand, and Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews in, uh, on the other hand. Well, a further type of relationship that we might mention uh, is that of, uh, let me see here, uh, is that of comparison which involves the association of things whose similarities are stressed by the writer. Um, You notice in Philippians, again, I think examples are very helpful here. Uh, In the book of Philippians, if you have it before you and have a chance to look at it, or if you remember it, uh, you remember that Paul compares his uh, expectations for the readers really the exhortations, commands that he gives to his readers, with persons who serve as models uh, for them. So he'll give give exhortations and and then say, really, I'm urging you to be like these models that I am describing here. The model of Jesus, of course, in 2, 1 through 11, that great famous kenosis passage, the emptying passage. Uh, The model of Timothy, in 2.19 through 24, Epaphroditus in 2.21 uh, through uh, 30. Um, actually, that should be 2.25 through 30. Uh, and of Paul, uh, Pasim really means throughout. Throughout, Paul uh, presents himself uh, as a model in terms of as comparison with what he wants his readers to be and to do. Of course, in, in terms of smaller um, units of material, uh, the parables serve as an example of comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like. So you have an explicit there, an explicit comparison between the kingdom of heaven and the story of the parable uh, in each case. Incidentally, uh, this suggests that the key terms for comparison are as or like, although you can have comparison implicitly when those key terms do not explicitly appear uh, even if the term is absent, you can have an association of things whose similarities are stressed uh, by the writer. A further uh, type of relationship, a further relationship is that of climax, which is a movement toward a high point of combination. And uh, we give here as uh, an example uh, the book of Daniel, where in the book of Daniel, Uh, The struggle of God and God's people throughout history, which is really found in chapters 1 through 11, comes to a high point of culmination, a climax 
in the description of the victory and resurrection of the righteous, along with the eternal blessings for those who endure in chapter 12. Of course, a number of examples of climax could be given. Um, the book of Exodus, as we, mentioned, uh, er, as we mentioned earlier, comes to a climax in the worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle on Sinai in chapter 40. The whole book is moving towards a high point of culmination where God really does what he said he would do back in chapter 3, and that is uh, that he would bring the people to this place so that they will worship me, he says, on this mountain. And in chapter 40, the tabernacle is completed, the Shekinah glory of God descends upon the tabernacle, and the people do, in fact, worship Yahweh there on Sinai. The whole book of Exodus is moving toward that high point of culmination. All, each of the Gospels, of course, comes to a climax, uh, reach, uh, is structured according to, a, to, to climax, and it's quite interesting uh, that the four Gospels really reach climax in a slightly different way in each case, which suggests really the uh, distinctive emphasis of each of the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, the climax is really with the cross. Uh, there is uh, relatively little said at the, at the end of Mark uh, with regard to the resurrection. Uh, that's especially the case, of course, if one recognizes that the Gospel of Mark, as Mark wrote it, uh, ends in, at 16.8, 16.9 uh, uh, through 20 is a so-called long ending of Mark, which was not produced by Mark. It's not part of the original Gospel of Mark, but was... Uh, uh, added by a later scribe, probably at the beginning of the second century, in order to uh, round out a book that, in his judgment, ended all too abruptly. Uh, but the, the book, as Mark composed it, at least as we have to assume that he composed it, ends at 16.8, and uh, really there's little attention given uh, to the resurrection uh, there. It's not that the resurrection is, that he's denying the resurrection by any means, that's not the case, nor that the resurrection is unimportant, but in terms of the structure of the book, the book comes to a high point of culmination in the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. In Matthew, though, by way of uh, different emphasis, uh, the ultimate climax of the book uh, comes uh, with the resurrection appearance, the final resurrection appearance of Jesus, the only resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples in the so-called Great Commission in 28:16 through 20. In the Gospel of Luke, and by the way, we might mention here that Matthew does not have, does not have an account of the ascension. Uh, there is no mention of ascension in Matthew's Gospel. When you go to Luke, though, you find that Luke comes to, the Gospel of Luke comes to a high point of culmination, a climax in the ascension. Uh, so that uh, uh, the ascension is really the ultimate, the primary thing in Luke's thinking, and really in his theology uh, in some ways. Uh, in, the gospel, in the course of the Gospel of John, it uh, comes to a high point of culmination in the, uh, in the resurrection, uh, and uh, really, uh, finally, in the statement of purpose that is linked to, and is at the end of the resurrection narrative in John's Gospel, this is John, 9, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not mentioned or written in this book. 
But these things are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and believing might have life in his name. So, all of, uh, so you notice, as I say, that each of the Gospels comes to a climax, really in the cross and in the, in, the, in the cross and resurrection, but within the cross-resurrection matrix uh, in somewhat different ways. And that marks, as I say, the distinctive uh, uh, concerns and emphases of the four uh, Gospels. Now, of course, when you have climax, um, it's important to uh, probe uh, exactly how the climactic passage actually culminates what you have in the preceding material. And that is to say, how the fact that this book comes to a climax here in this passage actually illumines passages earlier in the book. Because those passages earlier in the book are heading towards and are leading up to the climactic passage. So the climax actually illumines the meaning of earlier passages. And obviously, earlier passages illumine the meaning of the climax. Because the climax is a climax precisely because it builds and culminates those earlier passages. A further relationship we might mention is that of uh, cruciality, which uh, actually employs a device of the pivot. Um, this involves uh, actually a radical reversal or change of direction because of the pivot. Now, um, that's why we say uh, cruciality involves a pivot, a pivotal passage or event that produces a radical reversal or complete change of direction. So that what we mean by cruciality here is not simply a shift of emphasis. But more than that, it involves a radical reversal. So that which comes after the pivot actually um, undoes that which precedes the pivot because of the pivot passage. Now, in this example from the book of Esther, <coughs> what we have in chapters 1 through 4 is a commitment to and a movement towards destroying Mordecai and the Jews. Everything is moving in that direction. Until you get to the pivot passage in chapters 5 and 6, which is Queen Esther's appeal to King Ahasuerus. And on the basis of Esther's appeal, you have a radical reversal, so that rather than Mordecai and the Jews being destroyed by their enemies, it's actually the enemies of the Jews who are destroyed by Mordecai and the Jews. And the Jews, far from being destroyed, are actually exalted there in the second half of the book, all because of this pivot. So you notice you have a radical reversal, an undoing of that which precedes a pivot because of the pivot itself. Of course, this relates to perhaps the most famous line in the book of Esther, who knows whether you'd have not appeared for a time such as this. Esther's role, you see, in this radical re reversal. Now, I think it's clear from this example how important, again, recognizing, observing, this structural relationship is to understanding the book of Esther. 
the message of the book of Esther, the claim of the book of Esther, and also in interpreting even individual passages in the book of Esther. Because by recognizing this cruciality in Esther, uh, if you're working with interpreting any passage in the book of Esther, you want to ask, how does that passage fit in with and contribute to this overarching program? And how does the role, the function of that passage in this cruciality illumine the meaning of that passage itself? Now, uh, this uh, example from Esther uh, actually represents what we might call positive cruciality. Things begin badly and then turn around in a positive direction. Uh, an example from, and this, of course, is found, this, this uh, second example uh, uh, rep- it really has to do uh, not with a major relationship within a book, but it's found only in a portion within the book, but it, uh, it is uh, helpful in terms of illustrating what's involved in the relationship, and that is the account of creation and fall in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, where you have, of course, in uh, the, the passage, particularly in the second creation account, in Genesis 2 and 3, the uh, passage begins with innocence, the enjoyment of the garden, uh, fellowship with God, and then you have the sin of Adam and Eve of eating the forbidden fruit, which is the, which is the pivot, involves a radical reversal away from innocence, enjoyment of the garden, fellowship with God, towards guilt, shame, expulsion from the garden, judgment, broken relationship. Uh, with God. Now, you note that implicit within uh, uh, cruciality is the recurrence of causation. Um, this is uh, sometimes more obvious than in others, uh, but there is typically uh, a causal movement from the material that precedes the pivot to the pivot passage. This is clearly seen in uh, the example from Esther, uh, where Uh, the movement to destroy Mordecai and the Jews causes or leads to, results in Esther's appeal to King Ahasuerus. In cruciality, though, there is an even clearer causal movement from the pivot passage to that which follows the pivot passage. Here, of course, uh, clear, Esther's appeal to King Ahasuerus is a cause for the destruction of the Jews' enemies and the exaltation of Mordecai and the Jews. Okay, uh, a further type of relationship is uh, particularization, which really involves a movement from general to particular. This can actually take various forms, but uh, let me just uh, mention uh, a couple of them. Uh, you can have what we might refer to as ideological or logical particularization. Um, well, let me begin with, you can have uh, what we might refer to as identificational particularization. We have this, when a writer begins with a heading, and, the, and a general heading that sets forth the essential character of the rest of the book. Um, an example of this would be, i give a couple of examples, I'll give an example from Nahum uh, 101, uh, which is a, which is a, a decent uh, example uh, here, uh, but uh, um, which begins 
an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So you note that uh, he describes this book in terms of its essential character as book of the vision. So that the particulars that follow in Nahum 1, 2 through following are to be understood according to the general heading of book of the vision. And apparently the notion of vision here is extremely significant as a general heading according to which to understand the rest of the book of Nahum. Another example would be, of course, the Song of Solomons. The Song of Songs, which are Solomons. So that book begins with a general heading, Song of Songs. And uh, that really helps us to understand then that we are to, to read the rest of the book according to the general heading or the general character of Song of Songs, whatever that might mean. Uh, you can also have uh, uh, identificational, uh, per, or I should say uh, logical particularization or ideological particularization. You have this when... Uh, the uh, uh, when uh, the writer begins with a general statement, statement essentially a thesis. The the main idea, the main theme that the writer wants to get across, a kind of general thesis, with the rest of the book developing or unpacking that thesis. A, a good example of of this kind of particularization is found in Proverbs one seven. And this does pertain to the entire book of Proverbs. I, I at least consider Proverbs 1-7 to be a general heading, a general statement, I should say, a general statement for the rest of the book. In this one verse, you have the essential, essential claim, the essential meaning, the essential message of the book of Proverbs, and all the individual Proverbs unpack, specify, develop, particularize, give particular content to this general uh, thesis. Proverbs 1 7, of course. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Incidentally, I think that, that recognizing that verse as a general statement in the book of Proverbs is quite important for understanding what you have in many of the individual Proverbs because uh, many of the Proverbs do not mention the Lord at all. Uh, they seem to be just good advice with regard to life, uh, almost uh, secular. But the fact that they are placed within the book, a book that, had, that is structured according to verse 1-7 as a general heading, means that even in those Proverbs where the Lord is not explicitly mentioned, we are to read them as developing this theme here in 1-7, the fear of Yahweh. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, you can also have, in addition to logical, and mentioned, we call ideological here, or, uh, uh, or identificational um, particularization, you can also have um, historical particularization. Uh, we have this when a writer begins by describing a historical period or historical epoch in very general terms in terms of its, its general character, and then he goes ahead and develops uh, that historical period or historical event uh, in detail. I think a good example here is the 105th Psalm. 
Psalm 105. Especially 105, verse 5. Remember the wonderful works that Yahweh has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. See, that describes really the history of God's dealings with Israel in a general way. It's the, that history is described as the wonderful works that God, that the Lord has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And then the rest of the psalm, beginning in 105, verse 7, all the way through verse 45, talks about specific events, one event after the other in Israel's history up to the time of the psalmist, which go ahead and unpack or particularize that general way of describing the history of Israel as a whole. So that if you're going to preach or teach on Psalm 105, 5, remember the wonderful works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments, he uttered, you'll want to, to, to use the rest of the particulars of that, uh, of this, of, of, of that, uh, of that uh, history that, as I say, are presented in verses 7 and following. The particulars will give specific content to what he means by wonderful works that Yahweh has done, his miracles and the judgment that he has uttered. He invites us to interpret the general statement in light of the particulars that follow. On the other hand, if you're going to uh, work with the interpretation of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of passages within uh, verses 7 through 45, these individual events that are recounted here, uh, you want to interpret those individual events here in this psalm in light of the general description uh, in verse 5. Now, you can also have <clears throat> a geographical particularization, uh, we have this, when the writer begins by describing a broad general geographical area, and then he goes ahead and focuses, having done that, he'll go ahead and focus upon a particular place, a specific place within that broad geographical area with which he began. Uh, the book of Genesis is helpful in this regard, and is a good example in this regard. Almost certainly, the book of Genesis breaks, is a major uh, break point, between chapters 11 and 12. And in chapters 1 through 11, we have an emphasis upon the, the cosmos as a whole, and at least upon the, the, the whole earth. Now you do, of course, have some, uh, you really have, well, actually, you have very little reference to specific places uh, in chapters 1 through 11. Uh, the focus throughout chapters 1 through 11 is upon the whole earth. But you'll notice in chapters 12 through 50, the emphasis shifts. No longer is the focus upon the whole earth, but now he narrows or particularizes the focus from the earth to one particular place on the earth, and that is the land of Canaan. Which, of course, is highly significant because uh, the notion of land, and especially the land of Canaan, is central to covenant and to covenant theology uh, in, the, in the Old Testament and certainly within the book of Genesis. And so this, by structuring the book this way, the writer indicates that the significance of the land of Canaan is to be seen in terms of God's purposes, God's plan for the entire earth. Now, you can also have beyond... Uh, 
geographical uh, particularization and uh, identificational, logical uh, particularization, uh, these type, historical, you can also have biographical particularization. We have this when the writer begins by describing a, a larger or broader group of people and then focuses his attention upon one person or one subgroup within that larger group of people. Now, it so happens that the book of Genesis is, uh, offers a good example of biographical particularization as well because in chapters 1 through 12, the focus is upon the human race as a whole. It's true, of course, that you do have certain people mentioned there, Adam, Eve, Eve uh, Cain, and Abel, uh, Seth, to some extent, uh, Noah. <clears throat> uh, but insofar as those individuals are described, they actually represent, their function is to represent what's going on with the human race as a whole. The focus is really upon the human race as a whole in chapters 1 through 11, but in chapters 12 through 50, the focus narrows to one person, one man, and his family. Of course, Abraham. Well, in chapter 12, he's, at that point, Abram, so Abram or Abraham and his family. Now, of course, this is very significant because this has to do with the people of Israel. And again, the particularization in the structure of Genesis is theologically significant uh, because it indicates that the significance suggests that the significance of, uh, of that, well, it indicates a couple things. One is uh, that the family of, of Abraham, and especially the family of Jacob, the people of Israel, have a special role to play in relation to humanity as a whole. This is not simply another man. This is not simply another nation. Israel has a unique role to play, a special role to play in the world. But it does have a role to play in relation to the world. Uh, so that covenant is not, uh, is, 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 is not directed uh, uh, to Israel, and in a sense, as an end in itself, but to Israel as part of the human race, suggesting then that the purpose of covenant is for the sake of humanity as a whole. The purpose of the covenant with uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob, the people of Israel, it pertains to God's plan and purpose for humanity as a whole, uh, even as the land of Canaan. The, the covenant land of Canaan has significance in terms of God's plan and purpose for the whole earth. We might even say for the whole cosmos. Now, generalization involves the same two components as particularization, only in reverse sequence. Whereas particularization involves a movement from general to particular, generalization involves a movement from particular to general. If you're inclined to get confused uh, between particularization and generalization, remember that the relationship is named for the last thing. So that particularization is a movement from general to particular, whereas generalization is a movement from particular to general. And of course, you might expect, as you might expect, you have the same uh, specific types of, one might say, of, uh, of generalization as you had particularization. Um, you can have, again, identificational generalization, 
where the essential character of the book is found not at the beginning of the book, as we saw, say, with Song of Solomon or with uh, Nahum, not at the beginning of the book, but at the end of the book. And a really a very good example of, 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 uh, of uh, identificational generalization where the essence of the book, the essential character of the book, is indicated at the end is the book of Hebrews. And you remember the book of Hebrews ends at, practically ends at 1322, where the writer says, uh, I, I, I implore you, bear with my word of exhortation. So that the writer says that the essential character of this whole book is, in Greek, halagos teis paraklesios, word of exhortation. And increasingly, scholars uh, who work with the book of Hebrews take that seriously in terms of, of indicating the essential, the essential character of the book of, of, uh, of, he, of, of, uh, of, he, of Hebrews. And that is that Hebrews is primarily exhortation. That is to say, it has especially to do with the exhortations, with the urgings, with the commands that the writer gives in the book of Hebrews, suggesting then that, that the great Christological um, um, exposition, the great uh, theological argument with regard to Christ, and especially Christ's uh, high priesthood and the like, really exists for the sake of that which is most significant in the book of Hebrews, and that is the Christian lifestyle that is to grow out of that and is suggested by the blocks of exhortations or commands, Christian instruction. Uh, that we have uh, throughout uh, the book. <coughs> you can also have a kind of logical generalization where the thesis, the message, the, 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 the encapsulation of the whole message of the book is found not at the beginning of the book, but at the end of the book. And I think a good example of this is actually the last verse, practically, of the book of Romans. Uh, namely, Romans 16, 25 through uh, 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that's clearly, of course, a doxology. But, but it's a doxology that includes, that contains this general statement. And arguably, the whole message of the book of Romans, as I say, is encapsulated in this one statement. The rest of the book of Romans unpacks, really, this statement. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, an extremely significant term within that the, the book. Uh, matter of fact, that very phrase, you might remember, appears also in the first chapter of Romans, the obedience of faith. 
uh, so that you have a kind of bracket there as well. Now, you can also have, of course, a, uh, uh, what we might refer to as biographical ge generalization. Uh, and we talked about that already in relation to uh, Genesis, as well as geographical generalization. We mentioned that in relation to Genesis as well. Uh, but uh, uh, you can also have, uh, and we mentioned another example, like Psalm 5 moves from the description of one righteous man, the psalmist, in verses 10, to the description of righteous persons in general in uh, verses 11 and 12 uh, and the like. Um, but also in uh, the book of Acts, uh, you have a generalization, um, uh, which is actually suggested by the statement in 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so you'll note that the book of Acts, of, of Acts moves in terms of geographical generalization in that in chapters 1 through 7, you have the witness in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, the witness is expanded not only to Jerusalem, but also to all Judea and Samaria. Now, it's important to note that in chapters 8 through 12, uh, Luke is careful to indicate within these chapters that the gospel continues to be proclaimed in Jerusalem. Now that's very significant because if, if he had not made that clear, you'd have it being you'd, you'd have the gospel uh, being uh, you, uh, 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 being proclaimed from one particular place to another particular place. But he wants to emphasize even in chapters eight through twelve that the gospel continues to be, the witness continues to be made in Jerusalem. So in chapters 1 through 7, in Jerusalem, and then chapters 8 through 12, in Jerusalem, and beyond that, also, all Judea and Samaria, and then, of course, in chapters 13 through 28, to the ends of the earth. But again, Luke is careful here to indicate that, that although the emphasis here is that the witness of the gospel is expanding to areas uh, beyond Jerusalem and Judea, even here, he notes, he punctuates these chapters with references to continuing witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria as well, so that you have a true broadening out uh, geographically of the witness. And of course, this is one of the main claims uh, that the book, that the writer of, of Acts, Luke, uh, wants to make here. And clearly this broadening geographical expansion, this geographical generalization is central. Uh, to uh, his, uh, the message of the entire book of Acts. But it's not important, it's not, it's, it's not important only. This recognition, this obser observation of this relationship is important not only in terms of understanding the program of the entire book, but once again in terms of interpreting individual passages within the book. Uh, so that in interpreting any passage within the book of Acts, you'll want to ask yourself, where does it fit in this broadening geographical witness? And how does its role within the broadening geographical witness in the book in the large actually illumine the meaning of this passage itself? This is a good place actually to pause, and so we'll pause here uh, and uh, transition from one, one segment here uh, to the next. Thank you. 
this is Dr. David Bauer in his teaching on inductive Bible study. This is session number five, Whole Book Survey, Structural Relationships. Mm -hmm. 